0: One, two, three. Are we on?
1: So they can hear me? Okay. Can you all hear Jeff? Someone text me and say if you can hear Jeff.
2: Hey, Kingdom Roots listeners, thanks for joining us again today on the podcast. If you're wondering, what in the heck did I just listen to? That was Scott and Jeff warming up for their webinar that they did on the Great Gospel Experiment. And that was Scott doing the Shema in Hebrew. So if you've never heard that before in Hebrew, now you can say that you have. Um, But excited for the second part of this two-part episode today. Last week, uh, Scott set the groundwork and gave us Paul's vision about what he saw the church being as a fellowship of difference. And um, we covered that last time. This time, you're going to get to hear Scott give some specific examples from the book of Philemon about how these issues got worked out in mission. And he also answers some Q&A of those who are there uh, attending the webinar. So really great content again this week. I'm, I'm sure you're going to love it. So without further ado, here's the second part of the Great Gospel Experiment. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the episode, we have the second part of our two-part episode on the great gospel experiment.
0: We should check at the door anything that Jesus would check for opportunity of baptism and Eucharist. If Jesus welcomes them to his table, we should welcome them in our church. Yes, it may be there's some rumbling about differences, and I think Paul would say that is what the church is all about. It's a fellowship of difference where we work things out. Look at Paul's letter. Every letter that he writes, other than that, Well, let's jump into Philemon. Yeah, well, just saying okay. I I got a really good point. Here. Okay, keep going. Every one of those churches that he writes to, you see tensions because there were tensions. You if you want to have a church without tensions, you don't get the New Testament church.
1: That's my point. Amen. Well, so exactly. And Paul doesn't leave us without example, and he doesn't leave us yeah, without yeah, showing sure. how this lives and works out in concrete places. So we're yeah, we're yeah. going to transition to Philemon. I just want to remind everyone, uh, if you have questions like, how does this apply to our lives? We're going to have time at the end to do that. So be sure to put those th- in through the comments. And then again, a reminder that there'll be a gift coming at the end. So stay tuned for that. So why don't we jump into Philemon? Philemon. I think the 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 book of Philemon illustrates what Paul
0: means when he says there is neither slave nor free. Okay, what a nice idea! I like to quote C.S. Lewis. Forgiveness, he said, is such a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. Slaves and free, being in a fellowship is such a lovely idea until the slave's daughter wants to marry your free person uh, son. Then we have a problem. Well, the book of Philemon, I believe, actually explores the reality of that situation. It explores the reality of what it means for Jews and Gentiles, and especially slaves and free To have fellowship with one another. What happens in the Christian assembly to the slave? What happens to the slave who's a believer? What happens to the master who is a believer, to a slave who's a non believer, or to a slave who's a believer? This is the rough and ready, rugged reality of a first century church. When you open up the book of Philemon, you must hear gasps and questions, and frowns, and disagreements, and wonderings, and ponderings, and is this all up for grabs? Is the Roman Empire's status system completely up for grabs At Ph- in Philemon? So here's what happens. There's a slave by the name of Onesimus, which is, at best, um, a boilerplate name and could well be derogatory. The Greek word Onesimus means useful, and N.T. Wright, in his wonderful Kingdom New Testament, translates Onesimus, Mr. Useful, and that would be, that's like translating Adam as dusty, uh, which is about the right translation for the word Adam in Genesis 1 and 2. So, we got this Onesimus, and somehow Paul has come into contact with Onesimus, but Paul is in prison I think almost certainly in Ephesus, people dispute that. It doesn't matter at this point. Onesimus has, has somehow found a slave of Philemon, and they are from Colossae. Onesimus and Philemon are from Colossae. They have found their way to Paul in prison. How did Onesimus get there? There are two options. Uh, the most common option is that he ran away. We'll leave it at that. He gets to Paul in prison. And in prison, somehow, Paul leads him to Christ. Onesimus becomes a Christian. In that process, he probably revealed or divulged to Paul that he was a bad slave, that he was useless, even though he was called useful. And Paul is petitioned at some level. He is pressed both by Roman law and by fellowship in Christ to send Onesimus back to Philemon. You may know in Deuteronomy 23, there is an amazing piece of legislation that Jews were not to return refugee slaves to their masters. So what's Paul doing? Well, you could say that Paul just doesn't believe in the Old Testament anymore. He doesn't believe in that legislation in the Roman Empire. Or you could say he's just following Roman law. Or you could say what I think is probably the case, that Paul believed in more than the Old Testament law and more than Roman law. Around Roman law, he believed that there ought to be reconciliation between the two And so sending him back would not be sending him back into the same kind of brutal world that Onesimus was experiencing before, or at least it would be transformed. And I think that's the category. It would be transformed. So he sends him back. What does he send him back to do? Um, It is clear in the Pauline letters that Paul did not believe in a radical revolutionary emancipation of all slaves in the church who are Christians. Paul was not a social activist. Wearing skinny jeans, fighting against Roman laws of slavery, and I think this this is controversial, uh, and for that reason alone, I like it. And that is, Paul was blind to the immorality of slavery because he was a first century Jew and Roman. He just didn't think about slavery as an institution being immoral. That's another debate. It's another question, and it's a fun question to deal with. But Paul sends him back, and what does he do? Does he ask Philemon, the slave master, to release him, emancipate him, liberate him, manumit him, and send him off on his own so that he could have a free existence and become like uh, other slaves who were freed who became great, uh, famous people? Uh, It does not look like that's what Paul did at all. So Paul sends this letter, and in the, middle, in the middle, he says things like this. Therefore, I love this expression. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. This is very clever. Paul is saying, I could tell you what to do because I'm an apostle, but I'm not going to tell you. But because I just told you I could tell you, I sort of told you. And he winked, and he went on and said, I want you to do this voluntarily i want you to do it because you love me and because i love you and he says it is none other than paul and now he appeals to his own condition an old man and now also a prisoner of christ jesus so he has a low status in the roman world sort of like a slave because he's in prison i appeal to you now this is the major language for my son onesimus who became my son while i was in chains now the word son Uh, is not the Greek word hwios. It's the typical word, technon, that he uses for Timothy. It's language that is used for family and for special connection, his child in the faith who is his son. He used to be useless. He's now useful to both you and to me. I'm sending him back, and then he uses this beautiful expression of intimacy and love for Onesimus because Onesimus has been working with him side by side. Who is my very heart, he says. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in change for the gospel. So Paul thinks Philemon has been greatly instrumental, but now it is Onesimus who is that. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, he says. But Paul says, I want you to receive him, you can have him back, but this is the critical expression no longer with the status of a slave in the household of Philemon, but better than a slave, he will now have the status as a dear brother. Though a slave, he's a brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you. And he says, I want you to take him both as a fellow man and a brother in Christ. So if you consider me a partner in the ministry, Greek word koinonos, very important word for Paul. Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong, I'll pay you back. Now, what Paul does here is revolutionize the household. He does not probably, this is what I believe, he does not change the status of Philemon as a a slave owner, nor does he change the status of Onesimus as a slave. Instead, he turns them into brothers. They could be slaves. They could be masters. They could be slave owners. But now they're brothers, and they're to treat one another as siblings. That is the radical move that the Apostle Paul makes in the household of Philemon. And this, I think, is the critical factor of what we're talking about when we say Paul's uh, great gospel experiment. It was to create a fellowship of difference were slaves and free slaves and masters in colossians paul's still talking as if there are slaves and masters but they are now brothers and sisters and the slave owner will have to treat that slave justly and esotitas, with equity and equality and the slave himself will be serving christ and will be a good household member as a sibling, as a brother, as a sister, and no longer simply with the status of a slave. So Paul challenges both Onesimus to be a brother to Philemon. He has everything to gain in that. And he challenges Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother. This is the critical category for the fellowship of difference. I don't care about your status. I don't care about whether we have some systematic theological differences. I know that you are my brother, and I know that you are my sister. And as a result of that, we dwell together in unity in Christ because we are all submitting to Christ, and we have become a fellowship of difference. Now, uh, right. Jeff, Jeff has some questions for me.
1: I got some questions. Uh, yeah, I have to keep jumping in and out. I was writing them down, uh, so I got a couple here, and I'm going to go run up and get some more uh, really quick. So that was fantastic. Thanks so much, Scott. Um, I thought a, a couple of the questions that came in had to deal with church unity and difference. Uh, this one comes from Dusted. Is what could this say to uh, our denominational differences and even the historic churches of Eastern Orthodox and the Catholic Church? This vision of the Uh, this radical gospel experiment uh, cut through social differences, but now we even have ecclesial differences. So what do we do now? Social, racial,
0: gender, economic, status. All these differences were cut into by the apostle Paul. I think it's absolutely critical for us to remember that Jesus prayed in John 17, that, that, that they may be one. Now, He's more of an idealist than John Lennon because he has a realism in the gospel that can create the unity that John Lennon could never create. John Lennon could only find people who would be a Pied Piper and sing his songs. Whereas Jesus creates a unity that we find when we are willing to embrace it. But it is a challenge every time. So I don't think that this is idealistic. I think that this is realistic with a vision of God's great gospel experiment of creating a new kind of people, a fellowship, a difference. But it means it's much harder. I have a friend who's a pastor in Charlotte named Derwin Gray. And Derwin will tell you, day one, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church, is far more difficult to create than a fellowship of the same. It will have completely different problems and challenges. We have to be prepared for this. We cannot simply dwell in our fellowship of sames. Jeff, I often look at it like this. In the first hour in heaven, in the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, I've written about this in a book called The Heaven Promise. In the first hour, the first thing that will happen is that we will all be reconciled. Now, I don't know. I, I don't believe in purgatory. And I and I'm not saying that I know what's going to happen, but I don't care, I don't care when it happens, the first thing that happens in the kingdom of God is that all our irreconciliations and all our divisions will be healed. And if, there, if those reconciliations occur and divisions become unities, we will both be conscious of them and aware of our complicity in non-reconciled states and in divisions. That will be the first hour in heaven. The drums will not tap, and the band will not begin playing, and Amazing Grace will not be sung. I know it'll be Amazing Grace. It could be uh, a mighty fortress, because I like I like German. Um, but we know that those songs will not be sung until we've all been reconciled. If that's the first hour in heaven, we need to begin living in that now. And we do this one on one when you and I, as leaders, stretch out across boundaries that are clear boundaries and say, "I want to embrace you in a bigger and deeper unity."
1: Oh, that's great. I'm going to stick over here in this other chair so I can see all the, the questions coming in. There's a bunch of great questions coming in. One fits along with that one, but we'll get back to that. It's a question about ideological difference. But first, uh, we want to change gears a little bit to a question that both Rachel and Andy asked. Thanks for sh- uh, shooting them in. How does this kind of diversity uh, work in a rural context where, there, yeah. in one sense, there's not that much yeah, diversity? Yeah. Well, we, we can't go out trying to invent problems.
0: And I I don't think that there's anything wise or real about busing in Latin Americans, African Americans, or whites into a church so that we can have a fellowship of difference. That's just zany and silly. I know all kinds of churches where the diversity uh, option is zero. Uh, Okay, In, in those situations, in a rural church, where you have all people who are the same, that's what it's gonna be. And But we have to be a fellowship of the same. But I have not yet found any church, any community, where all the Christians are unified and reconciled. It doesn't take but a generation, and we got people dividing and fighting and quarreling and creating divisions within the church. So in those communities, they're gonna simply try to work toward reconciliation in every kind of area that there possibly could be. And there could it be, at least be, I imagine this is where we're going with ideological. There are gonna be <laughs> in most church, in most rural communities, you're gonna have at least some Republicans and some Democrats in the United States. And that right there is enough for many people to divide over. And that is a denial of the gospel because we should not be letting our allegiance to Caesar uh, determine fellowship in Christ.
1: Amen to that. Uh, I know I'm off camera, but uh, I think one of the most significant areas of unity building in the church probably needs to be across the political divides. Yeah. But that's for maybe a whole nother webinar. Uh, So before we get directly to that question, uh, a couple people asked. Matt Erickson in Milwaukee, who is an alum of Northern, as well as Jake uh, Smith and others have asked, uh, is this a way of articulating a theology for multi-ethnic churches? Like, is that how you see this kind of working? Um, Because I know that's kind of a lot of people are trying to do that work to break up, you know, the sameness of the, especially the white church. Yeah, yeah, only no. Uh, Yes, but no. And
0: here's what I mean by no. There is only one church. And that church is multi-ethnic, according to Revelation 4 and 5. So, therefore, any church that is not an adequate demonstration of the demographics of a local community is a denial of being what the church is supposed to be. So, yes, this is a rationale for a multi-ethnic church, but only because the New Testament only knows of a
1: multi-ethnic church. Boom. I think that's going to blow up on Twitter pretty soon. Uh, So, basically, if you're not a multi-ethnic church, you're not a church, according to Paul.
0: Okay, I'm willing to (laughs) say that, except in environments where there's only one ethnicity. Sure. sure. Okay, yes. But if if you and I live in Chicago and in the suburbs... We, we should have multi, you know, our, I asked our, our pastor the other day, Jay Greener, what's our, uh, what's our uh, demographics? We're about 20% uh, minority. uh, That's not bad in the Chicago suburbs. Um, The key thing for me is whether we embrace and evangelize people of all sorts, or whether we are comfortable for all sorts. I don't want to say we're, we're for all people of all sorts as long as they go along with the kinds of things we're doing. That's where we're making a big mistake, is that the minute you embrace multi-ethnicity in your church, other people begin to influence the way the church works. So So all people must be empowered. It's not a white man... Leading a multi ethnic church, and it's very white in structure and design and ideology, etc. But rather, uh, the minute you uh, embrace Latin Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans, everybody has to come to the table, and it begins to change the culture of the church. That's when it becomes multi ethnic. That's what Paul was talking about.
1: All right, I'm going to sit back down for this last one. Uh, that. uh, if anybody would look at the church in Antioch uh, when Barnabas was sent up there to check things out as he was bringing Paul down, and you you look at the names of the people that are listed early on in that church, uh, you see that it was very multi-ethnic and. so like you said, this has always been a part of the church as it's been going out. So one last question, I didn't really prepare this for you uh, as we wrap things up, but you you blogged about it this morning, and you talked about the different uh, Levitical codes or was it in Deuteronomy about like refugees and things like that? How does everything you said um, and that Paul was writing about fit into these contemporary questions of how do we, you know, live in and among or welcome people who are different, who are in crisis and without a home? Yeah, let's bring
0: it right into uh, the presidential election and uh, real. Uh, One thing, I don't like politics determining our conversations, Uh, but but I, I would say this, that, Deuteronomy 23 established a principle in Israel that is dramatic and radical and revolutionary. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was international law in most locations for people to return refugee slaves to their master and to their country. It was just that was international law. God tells Israel. Do not return a refugee slave to their master, their country. Give them space in your land. Give them a home, and you cannot oppress them. This is an amazing piece of legislation. So what we're doing in the United States is fundamentally contrary to the redemptive movement vision of the Bible, that we will be people who see someone fleeing from danger, fleeing from a harsh situation, and they come to us, we are to show compassion, and we are to create space and freedom for such people. Now, this gets complex. This is what we should be doing as a church, finding places to be sanctuaries and stations of liberation for people who have been oppressed. That's what we should be doing. Um, I don't know that it does us any good To go stand in front of the White House or to stand at an airport and just make life terribly inconvenient for lots of people so that we can feel good that we're doing something. The really something we must be doing is creating spaces where we can find refugees, where we can find immigrants, and we can find places and spaces for them to become the sorts of people God made them to be. That's what I think uh, this would say, that Paul is saying, when you welcome them in. Now, if they're not believers, it's a different game altogether. We want to be able to evangelize, and we want to be able to create space of compassion and love so that they could listen to the words that we have about Jesus. But uh, if they're believers, we want to be known for creating and embodying spaces of of emancipation and liberation, because we treat them as brothers and sisters. As Paul taught us, we've created a family of siblings. For those who are not believers, we are just simply working in that direction, but we will show compassion and love. I believe that we should oppose legislation that would be non-compassionate
1: toward refugees fleeing from danger. So however we view these things politically, nationally, we all have different understandings of how a, a nation like America should govern itself and how to protect its borders. But the Christians, wherever they might be, their impulse, as you said, should be toward compassion, mercy, and the bolstering of freedom within the communities that they're in and around. I mean, it's amazing. Paul said, you know,
0: I mean, the, the, the law said, it's in a, basically it means find space for them. Let them find a place to live. Help them on their way. That's what we need to be doing.
1: All right. Well, our time is just about uh, upon us. Thank you for everyone who has hung this far. Just as I get up from my seat, I'm going to walk over and I'll drop into the comments the link to the gift that you guys have been waiting for. Thank you so much. But really quick, you're about to head upstairs for lunch and you do a Lunch Greek uh, practice session in your cohort you have launched a new master's in new testament and as part of that you're offering for free uh classes and and learning how to read greek but it's also uh, a a program that is structured around evenings uh and spread out so that just about anyone could fit it into their lives. Uh, And so uh, we'll be sending you some information about that. If you're a college student thinking about ministry, or maybe you're in the ministry, or you just feel like you need that training, this would be a great place for you to kind of connect, to hear more from Scott about all these different things. But if you're uh, a pastor, seasoned pastor, who has been in the ministry for a long time, uh, but you just want a way to supercharge maybe your preaching and to hone your teaching – uh, Scott is also launching a doctorate ministry in New Testament context, which will yep. be launching this summer, uh, which has a built-in late, trip late in to the summer. Greece, it kind of It's yeah. going to be Israel. The
0: uh, the D min goes to Israel, and my Master of Arts in New Testament, the master's degree, goes to Turkey and Greece, as long as it's safe. But yes, right. we have. I call it. We call it Greek for lunch, and um, it's not a required course, but some students want to learn Greek. And so we're doing it, and it's free. We have lunch uh, every Monday for about an hour, and we go through some Greek readings, and we just talk about Greek. And over time, uh, I, my promise is that in four years, the students who stick with it will be pretty good in Greek.
1: Amen. So Greek, like Jeff. master's degree. Yeah, I should be going there. Uh, and then uh, also... Uh, trip to Israel for doctoral program, at, as well as may pop, probably working on some sort of your writing projects and being yes. a part of that. The whole cohort. Yeah, we're always kind of working on something. trying to write things together. So, yeah. so we'll be shooting out some information about that. And again, I'll be uh, sending you a survey. Thanks for your time. Thanks for being here. I got to get Scott out of here.
2: Well, hey, hope you enjoyed that second part of the Great Gospel Experiment. And, and really got to see an example, a real-life example. I think that's why Philemon's so great about how a fellowship of, of difference took root then. And of course, we hope that's informative and uh, tr- maybe transformative for you as the kingdom is taking root in your specific ministry context. So before we go, I wanted to remind you of something that I mentioned uh, last week on the podcast, and that was our Theology on Mission lectureship with Stanley Hauerwas. He's going to be joining us at North. and just asking the big question of why do we need the church? And he's going to be here on June 8th and 9th. That's a, a 8th, the Friday night, and the 9th, a Saturday morning. We'd love to have you join us on campus live if you're in the Chicagoland area, but if you're not, I wanted to let you know that we also have a live streaming option for this event. So um, distance is no obstacle. If you're interested in hearing the renowned theologian Stanley Hauerwas, we would love to have you join us for that. Uh, You can learn more and register on our website at seminary.edu slash onmission17. Again, to join us for that Stanley Hauerwas event, you can register at seminary.edu slash onmission17. Well, thanks again for joining us this week. Uh, We hope you're having a wonderful week and we look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.